Thank you for listening to Return to Roots Mildevet Resource Podcast, where we document our shared experiences, stories, and transitioning and reintegrating from the military to the community. For more information, go to mill2vet.com. If you have little ears, ensure you listen to the content before you allow them to listen. And if you are in crisis and homelessness, suicide ideations, or incarceration, dial 211 Courage to Call for assistance. Now, stand by for the sound of freedom. JR, welcome to the show. Welcome to Return to Roots. We are extremely happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So can you tell our audience, who are you? Sure. So I, uh, I'm a retired uh, regional master chief. Um, I did 31 years active duty. Uh, 15, or excuse me, 16 of those years were at overseas duty stations. Uh, my last uh, last five commands were command master chief billets. So, and I've done everything from a wing master chief at Kamasea, Japan, to the regional master chief and uh, and uh, Naples, Italy. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I fraudulently enlisted in the Navy. So, when I joined the Navy, my mother had a Bible that indicated I was born in the year before I was actually born. So uh, for my original enlistment contract, on my contract it reads, verification of birth, cited family Bible. That's awesome, absolutely. This is an unquestionable document. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I guess she was still in a state of shock. I was, uh, I was 13 pounds, 12 ounces, and I was her first kid. Oh, so, wow. yeah. So that's where I am. Uh, once I uh, once I retired from the Navy, I uh, uh, taught scuba. I taught scuba in Naples, Italy for a while, and then I taught scuba in, in uh, Virginia. Uh, after teaching for a little bit, I ended up uh, uh, going to the University of Mary Washington and completed a graduate degree in education. And I was queued up to be a high school teacher in Stafford, Virginia. Um, but then in September of 2009, I got a phone call uh, from the Smithsonian asked me if I would be interested in interviewing for a position up here. I said, sure. And in January of 2010, I was scheduled to start teaching. So in October, I got a phone call saying, Hey, we would really like you to come to the Smithsonian and do this job. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so here I am. So I started it in 2010, 13 years later, here I am. And uh, loving every minute of it. So. And so you- Along with like the transitional tools, if uh, Smithsonian gave you a ring, how did you get your uh, how did you get your business out there so that uh, they were able to reach you? I went into USA Jobs and put in an application or a resume, if you will, and because I had been a safety officer in Gitmo, I qualified as a safety professional, and so I did the interview with my boss, and she uh, she we hit it off quite well, and uh, so she hired me. And then I did five years in that position, working part-time natural history and part-time museum support center. And then I uh, went to our oversight facility, which is our oversight OSHA, if you will. I did that for 14 months. 
And then the job that I'm currently in became available and the folks at Natural History asked me to apply for it. So now I'm sitting in the chair of the person who hired me initially in 2010. So it's a, it's a blast. I was really lucky. I, I guess my, my uh, transition protocol, if you will, or philosophy was I, I had a plan. You know, I was going to go from, you know, retiring and then start teaching scuba. And that provided me the opportunity to still be in charge. Because when you're teaching scuba, you're in charge of the group. And so that that was a good, good vehicle for me to, you know, continue being in charge, doing what I wanted to do, and not sitting around at the VFW. Hmm. Interesting. So with that, now you went from teaching scuba and then to the Smithsonian, which was not part of your original plan. How did you shift and pivot to allow that to not be a deterrent or to actually help you create momentum going forward? Well, like I say, I was focused on scuba until uh, I was accepted to grad school. And then once I was accepted at grad school, that was my primary focus. And, I'll, and I was a chapter 30, so I only had one year to complete that master's degree. So, and I needed about six more classes of undergrad stuff to fulfill the uh, degree that I was after for teaching. Because I was, I was doing a advanced placement history and social sciences. And so I had missed some of those things uh, in my regular undergrad, undergrad degree. So not only was I taking you know, five series classes. I was also doing some threes and fours at the same time. So there was no slack time. It was, uh, I'd get up in the morning, I'd go to school, you know, and it was online, mostly, most like, except in the evenings when I have to go down to Mary Washington. Does that help? Absolutely. But there was always a focus for me. There was always something that, you know, that I was in charge of. And so that's what helped me. You had, um, looking at your history of assignments, you have, um, wow, you've, you've been abroad for quite some time. Um, not everybody does that. There's a lot of people that will never leave the States. There's people that get in the fleet concentration areas, you know, and, you know, I'm not mad at them. You know, everybody has different interests, you know, I mean, um, but being abroad for so long, I think you mentioned 16 years. Is that accurate? Correct. 16 years. You know, how did how did being abroad so long influence the way you view us as America, as Americans? How did it how did it influence the way you viewed our union and how did it shape you as an American living abroad? That's an excellent question. And so, you know, I'm a southerner, basically. But by living in Japan, living in Cuba, living in London, living in Naples, living in Sicily, I've not fully recognized that America is not a bunch of white guys following NASCAR all the time. <laughs> so there, there is more diversity out there and it, you grow to appreciate, you know, all those experiences. I also thought it was kind of funny that, you know, that uh, Japan and Naples, Italy are diametrically opposed. So when you're in Japan, when you come out of the subway station, you know, we've got the ladies there passing out the little packets of uh, tissues, right? Well, when you're in Naples, Italy, that folks are on the street when you stop at a stoplight, they're trying to sell you those napkins. So I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. 
So yeah, it definitely helped me understand that there's a lot more diversity on the planet and to enjoy the, you know, the cultures that you're in. I mean, I, I love Japan. I, you know, the only place that I feel at home is Naples, Italy. And I know that's really wild, but you know, when I land in Capodicino airport, I get goosebumps. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just the culture there is so different and so chaotic and, uh, you know, and, and I loved it. So you know, I love the fact that, you know, stop signs and stop lights were merely recommendations. <laughs> did you feel that between, or did you, did you view with your experience and your living abroad, Catania, Gitmo, Yokosuka, Naples, London, uh, with such an incredibly wide breadth of assignments, um, how would you say that that shaped you as the leader, which you ultimately became? And how was it beneficial in um, becoming to your final uh, assignment as a top sailor over in Europe? Well, it it definitely made me grow. I mean, uh, you know, and understanding some, you know, the different sailors that are stationed in these different locations. So I'll tell you that, you know, two of the sailors that I absolutely respect and think have more worth than anyone else I've met, other than Amy, of course, is uh, uh, two guys that when I checked on board the ship on on the O'Brien in Yakuska, Japan, both these guys had been in Yakuska for, you know, all of their careers. And, you know, and I'm the outsider coming in. And I'm like, the first thing I told both of them was that if I had my way, you would not be here. You need to rotate back to the States so that you can, you know, get reblued, if you will, and get a normal, you know, experience in States. Three years later, when I left that ship, I told both those guys, uh, I was wrong. You know, they were hands down the best damage controlman and the best bosun's mate I'd ever known in my life. So definitely, definitely grow a little bit and humble. Going, doing a tour overseas and being there for a while, um, it allows you to see that. And that was something that I always noticed with everyone that comes um fresh from the states and never done a tour in the in you know overseas and they come with this huge mindset of everyone that is doing everything in japan specifically oh they're just cowboys and running and doing everything you know doing whatever they want for lack of better words right but in japan of all places it's not doing what you want is surviving and learning how to cope with basically every obstacle that you can possibly imagine and making the mission still without having a negative attitude or anything like that just making it happen right and making the best out of things um and most people just like you said that i've known that did at least one tour there they come back with this massive awareness and this massive appreciation of first I thought it was nothing but cowboys and Indians just going crazy and now I fully appreciate to the depths of the people that are out there fighting and honestly without all of that knowledge because we 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 have been around to where there was been multiple times that they have wanted to take everyone out of Japan and put in fresh new blood in there um, and get rid of the lessons learned 
but that if that would have been fully the case and they would have gotten rid of that knowledge that tribal knowledge it would have created a huge massive chaos it would you're absolutely right uh those two guys knew everything where to get something how to get something how to fix something you know it's just it was incredible so it, without that and you know institutional knowledge we would have been lost yeah so tell us a little bit more about what is it what is your role now that you are in the smithsonian what is your role there what do you do so i manage the museum support center which is a uh the off-site storage facility for the Smithsonian. So I house, I've got about 750,000 square feet of offices, laboratories, and storage facilities. I house about 60% of the Smithsonian collection and about 55% of the natural history collection. So we have everything from, you know, hummingbird eggs to the largest known bone to exist, which is a blue whale bone. Um, and so I'm responsible for oversight of the facility to include, you know, protection of the collections, access to collections, construction projects. Right now I'm replacing all my air handling units to chiller plants, elevators. Uh, you know, the building was completed 16 May, 1983. So, you know, I'm a 40-year-old building. But my air handlers and my uh, elevators are original to the building, of which a life cycle for an air handler is about 15 years. I'm at the 40 year mark. So it's been, <laughs> uh, it's, it's been really raising cane and, uh, you know, bringing attention to the senior leadership that, you know, I've got 60% of the Smithsonian collection out here. You would think that they would provide me maintenance money to maintain that, to protect the collections. So that's my biggest thing. And working with other museums, I've got, uh, I've got, uh, all the other Smithsonian's are out there with the exception of the Natural Museum of American History and Culture and uh, Air and Space, everybody else I have. So I've got collections from Cirque, I've got collections from the zoo, I've got collections from American History, uh, Hirschhorn, Freer Sackler, African Art, uh, all the 19 facilities have collections that are stored in the pods. And so I provide access to the collections by are for those managers of the collections. Yep. With um, such a big piece of um, surface area, of course, you said 750,000? Yep. That's a pretty impressive piece of it. That's a pretty big footprint. Um, do you, I'm sure you probably already know, or was it said like when you were doing your interview, did you find that your um, experience, was it time and services leadership in the Navy with a militant mindset and the ability to be able to take care of stuff, work autonomously? Or uh, like, what was it? Um, what was it that, what, what do you, what do you, what do you reckon that the Pentagon, what was the reason Pentagon reached out to you? I'm sorry, not Pentagon, Smithsonian. Yeah, I, I got you. It's uh, I, Well, first of all, I was a known quantity. So I had been with the Smithsonian for six years at that point. And so they knew who I was. And, and my mindset is that, you know, we get the job done. I, you know, find ways to say yes and not go to jail. So, you know, that's my bottom line. So we need to find ways to say yes and, and not do anything illegal. And I have one of the folks that work for me now often 
will say, that's not my job. And I've never said that. You know, I, it's not in my DNA to say something's not my job. You know, I just, and, and I think the leadership at, this, at the Natural History knew that about me. And so, and it has worked out wonderfully. And oh, by the way, I'm in the process of building another pod. And upon completion of this in 2025, I'm going to be about a million square feet. Man, keep that up. You'll be catching up with the Pentagon over across the street. <laughs> well, there is a, there is actually a 40-year plan. So we continue daisy-chaining out pods on top of pods uh, as we uh, raz some of the uh, older buildings that are on the Garber side. Yeah, not my job. I think that that's probably one of the most arrogant things that people can you know, like, how do you say that? You know, there was there was something that was actually making its way around the Internet not too long ago. It's just like that, you know, help out, stop with it. It's not your responsibility. Make the solution happen. No excuses, you know. And um, also, it, it kind of like what you're talking about as far as um, don't making it happen. It's, it's kind of in line with uh, you mentioned three of your guiding principles were one, do not compromise. Uh, two, speak the truth with everyone, and three, don't make assumptions. Um, have you found that that has um, been tenets of what has uh, formed you as leadership, or did you develop those along the way, or how do you take those three to continue on post service into the veteran or into the transitional mode? Yeah, I, I've acquired those over the course of time, and uh, and I preach that to my folks as well, especially that last one. Don't make assumptions. You don't. You don't know what's in somebody's mind. I mean, if they say something, you take it as a as an insult or something derogatory. You don't know. You, you're assuming that they're meaning it in an unfavorable way. So you know, I, mean, I have those cards printed up with those three things, and then uh, you know, all of my folks have one of those cards on their on their desk. Those are the three things, and so they. They're rogered up on it, and it works out. If you could go back with all your knowledge about transition, reintegration, and the whole process, would you have changed your tactics as a CMC, or would you have changed your guidance or knowledge or um, mentorship towards jun the junior sailors that you led? Yeah, I, I think I would. I mean, you know, when I first started out, I was, you know, I, I read The Prince, you know, Machiavellian. So that was kind of sort of the way that I ran things. As I grew and, you know, and became a better person and a better master chief, I, I leaned more towards the counseling and the mentoring phase. And, and that's even today, I mean, I, that's where I try to go is uh, make sure that folks understand that, you know, that I am a mentor and I have their best interests at heart. And um, and that really does help. I mean, I, I my folks will do probably just about anything for me. So, you know, and nine times out of 10, I don't even have to ask. You know, they see something that needs to be done, they go do it because they know that I'll support them. So, and that, that has helped a lot. Is there any specific advice you would give a CMC uh, that would be listening to this podcast right now on what, would help their sailors transition out of the military and reintegrate better? What what kind of support they can give them? 
uh, go to, you know, put in your VA paperwork as early as possible. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're, if you have some type of service connected disability, you know, get that in there at well in advance so that they can verify and, and, um, you know, and, and get you going before your, you know, your transit date. That, that and seek out, uh, you know, seek out those sources. So that's my best advice. Okay. I didn't, I didn't necessarily do that. And so, uh, you know, in retrospect, I probably should have, and that would have helped me out, I think. And so I tell my folks if they're transitioning, well, at the end, if you're transitioning, you know, get that stuff done early. And don't be afraid, and don't be afraid to hire an attorney if you think that you're being short-sighted. Having, um, well, having been out for a while, what, you know, VA, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of people got a lot to say. People think whatever, you know, a lot of rumors, lots of memes, lots of stuff. What positive changes have you seen in the VA since your retirement date? Because I'm sure you probably keep up a little bit with that. Or if you're not active with, you know, it's, of course, your personal. But um, if you're willing to share, what are the what is what are the best things that you can see have been the best changes that have made the VA better in the last however long since you got out? Sure. Uh, I, well, I'm fortunate because I had the VA here in D.C. And so one of the bigger uh, facilities, if you will, is here on Irving Street. And uh, they seem to be much more responsive if you have issues. And, uh, you know, they have folks on staff that, you know, or liaisons, ombudsman, if you will, uh, and and they're active. And if you approach one of them, they will they will assist you. Also, the thing I like is that you know, because there is such a shortage of physicians, that now they've got the program where uh, you know if you can't get a appointment within thirty days, you can seek an outside provider, and VA will pay for it. So that's pretty helpful. Yeah, that's so, the uh, community care. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's definitely a big change mindset wise. Um, one thing, I, what would be, um, you, you mentioned a second ago, you said it like, well, I didn't necessarily try that myself, you know, or do that myself, but along those lines, what is your greatest or what was your greatest transition lesson, um, that you believe anybody henceforth could benefit from? Have a focus. What are you going to do? And hopefully it's not sitting at the VFW. <laughs> yeah have a purpose in life and go down that street now like i said for me it was scuba then it was you know school and now it's the job so i have a focus and that that will keep you going have you dealt with a lot of uh service members that have since left the military and have been lost have you had that well, we do have a couple of folks that are stationed or stationed that are working, <laughs> that work here with us. Uh, and in fact, uh, I was approached just a couple of weeks back about, you know, uh, since I was the de facto master chief for the Smithsonian, I'm supposed to set up a, a, a Navy birthday uh, gig where we're going to go to a local you know, establishment and toast to the Navy's birthday. So, um, 
so you know the folks that are that are previous sailors I, I haven't seen any of them that didn't have a direction so they seem to be pretty good at what they're doing and pretty focused you know and i've got everything from you know uh, a medical doctor uh to you know a, a, another chief bosun's mate so you know they they seem to be doing well and we all check in with each other so that's good the common ground of prior service, I think, is a, a good, strong bond amongst the previous service members, Navy or otherwise. Absolutely. And where we really have a leg up, specifically in the Smithsonian, is that, you know, through our entire adult lives in the military, you know, we're we're being trained, we're getting leadership training, we're getting, you know, all of those tools for our toolbox to help us become successful leaders. In the Smithsonian, it's a little different because it's a lot different. So the way they work it is that a researcher or a uh, uh, a scientist, they are hired because they are very best at what they do on this one specific thing, like studying of mold, studying of, you know, vertebrates. But during that course of their path, if you will, they get zero leadership training. So, and then every five years, they rotate through the chairmanships of these particular departments. And so these guys and gals, uh, you know, come into being a chairperson for their department, and they've had zero training on leadership or mentoring or how to, you know, work with employees. Because they've always been solo. They've always worked alone. They've always done research alone. And they're, you know, mostly out in the field. And so they just don't have that, you know, that relationship building skill wow that's crazy and and you do see it you do notice it and now that i'm starting that i have been starting my transition i've seen that a lot more or i've noticed it with the civilian side however it is challenging to accept that that is the status quo with the majority of the population that doesn't do a term in the you know United States military. Now, with that, what would be your biggest um, leadership advice for let's say junior sailors that are listening to this podcast? Yeah, there's a couple of things. A, show up for work on time, sober, and do your job. <laughs> if you can do those three things, you will be successful. Okay, what about for first classes that are striving to become chiefs? Yeah, I, I, taking those hard hard jobs. That's uh, that's what got me where I was. I mean, I did, I did a lot of sea time, a lot of overseas time, uh, taking the instructor duty jobs, uh, you know, doing the stuff that nobody else really wanted to do because it's hard work, uh, and it wears you out. So, you know, and I set two. Uh, chief selection boards. And I said a chief selection board, and then I said an eight and nine selection board. And uh, that was the, now granted, that this is ancient history now, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was the folks that were doing the sea tours, doing the tough jobs, uh, you know, not having that Norfolk NEC, you know, uh, to, uh, where they're staying right there in, in Norfolk, Virginia. Now, that being said, if they're going from sea duty to shore duty in Norfolk, Virginia, doing a correct seashore rotation, then they're good to go. 
uh, you know, but you got to make sure that you're being on that thing that's pointed on one end, rounded on the other. So, yeah. that help? Oh, absolutely. Um, wow. So, I didn't actually anticipate asking a question like this one, but having sat on the board, um, obviously a lot of people like to try to, um, you know, people like to, they're very career oriented and you try to, you know, guys want to be gifted as leadership roles, you know, and with different leadership roles might open up different opportunities in the end. So like if people know that they want to do a senior management or a, uh, a senior leadership role once they retire and I'm not going to call being a chief or, or, or a, a, a commander or something like that, a stepping stone role, but certainly it's going to build experience. Um, but from that selection board, what would you say would, um, what would, what would you offer? Obviously not compromising the board here, but what would you offer to um, the people on the, to the people who've submitted their packages, they're up for selection, they're up for board. What do you submit to them? I mean, just only take the hard jobs or, I mean, or anything about record keeping, things like that, so that they can best prepare for separation. No, we, all the records that I looked at, you know, everything was complete. Uh, uh, the one thing that's kind of frustrating was, is that you'd pull a fish, you know, and start reading through it. And then you're required by law to read the package if they send the package in, right? But, you know, like I had 8,000 records I had to review for the seven board. Yeah. And so, you know, the guy that I've just gone through all of his fish and looked at everything that he's done, all of his reps and everything, and I break out his package and it's just a duplicate of what I've just read. <laughs> you know, you're required by law to look at it. But, uh, you know, it was, that can be a little frustrating. So pull your microfish before the board. Make sure everything's in there. If it's not, get it corrected. Yeah, I only send a package in if it's absolutely missing something. I never send a package in. Keep your record up to date, right? Yeah. I mean, keep, keep it your up. record up to date. Absolutely. No, those are still actually, I imagine it, Yogi and Chris, Chris just retired, but um, that was what it was like my whole time as a chief as well. It's like, dude, re-enlist every couple of years. Me personally, I did it every three years at the, absolute latest because i didn't want to send in you get these guys i'm going to do a six-year extension why dude your record's going to be this thick when it goes <laughs> you're, really, you're, right. you're going to have to send in two microfish in order mm -hmm. to keep up yeah yeah pretty interesting um well, I, oh go ahead yogi what so we talked slightly about the va and the application process and stuff like that and the location that you have, it's huge, right? Because you've been able to get a lot of help and a lot of courtesy from where you're at. With that as, as a basis, right, there's other places that are challenging and they don't have the resources or the community care. Do you have any advice for those kind of service members or veterans yeah find find a facility that's within 50 miles and go there yeah and, and clock your miles because you know you will be able to ask for reimbursement for mileage you know find one that's a uh, find one that's able to support you that's my best bet 
when you um finally knew that it was time for your transition and you knew it was just like all right couple assignments and you knew your time was coming uh kind of ironic the last guy we just interviewed actually you'd think he'd have had to got marched across that blue line at gunpoint he just didn't want to go he knew his time was coming but um it was um he 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 definitely loved it he definitely loved service but when you um when you were finally there what challenges did you find and what was your or what were your biggest challenges and what were your resources that you leaned on on the way out besides just USA govs and um and and get a vets.com account or vets.mil account make sure your VA application like external to that what else helped you that's a great question. You know, I um, I had some really good friends that were in senior enlisted leadership roles there in Naples when I transitioned. And so, you know, I was still able to, you know, to give them a call if I needed to. And they, they were supportive. Uh, but as far as, you know, so my last hurrah in, uh, in Naples was that the command, the chief's transition period was going on and somebody had done something stupid over in Rota. And so my boss, two-star Admiral Bozen, sent me and the fleet master chief to Rota to investigate. We did. We said, okay, the master chief did what he was supposed to do. He was a little slow on the uptake, but he corrected the issue. And we talked to Interviewed several folks, took several days, um, and uh, finished our report. Went in and told his commanding officer that you know what we had found. Then I came back to Naples and uh, told uh, the fleet master chief and I told uh, my boss that you know that you know we had chatted with the master chief, we had you know, counseled him informally that he did the right thing. He just did a little bit slower than what he should have. And that, uh, you know, we were satisfied with that end result. And my boss we had to go down and tell the four-star, Admiral Mullen, that this is what our uh, results were. And Admiral Mullen looked at my boss and said, no, I want, the, I want that Master Chief fired. And my two-star boss said, no, Master Chief said that they did the right thing, just a little too slow, and he's been counseled, so I'm not firing and the four star said, "Yes, you will. You will fire him." <laughs> and my boss said, "No, I'm not. You can't make me." <laughs> so uh, my boss earned a whole buttload of cool points after that. So I just thought that was pretty impressive. That's fascinating having that integrity and that commitment to stay, uh, regardless of whatever possible consequences or what possible um, turmoil would cause. I've always admired people that stood their ground when it was the right thing to do, right? I agree. And so that's that's fascinating. And you having that clout and that experience of being able to, especially during that transition time when Admiral Mullen was around and the Chiefs mess and that leadership change, that was huge. And being able to have that impact of what good leadership was and how to get keep on going forward. I want to ask you, because you transitioned out of Italy, correct? Second? Your last duty station was in Italy. That's correct. Naples, Italy. Would you have, 
if you could go back in time, would you have transitioned out of there, or would you would you have rather come to the states and transition, or did it matter? I don't think it really mattered to me. I mean, I, you know, I was one of the, one of those guys that didn't did not have a. Uh, I'd never bought a house before, you know, because I'd been traveling so much. And so it really didn't matter to me. I didn't have a burning desire to get back to the States and, you know, and put down roots or anything. I was kind of enjoying the Naples life, you know, scuba diving, Cafe Cornetos and, you know, Cafe Corretos and, and, you know, and just enjoying that life. Wow, that's awesome. Before getting picked up with the Smithsonian or even going over there and just only having like um, a couple of the um, service members, it sounds like you do have um, a pretty solid influence over that what's in your charge. Um, but did you see a big change of going? What was your big change and adjustment you had to make going from being Europe's top sailor to um that influence changing to where you're at now did it um positively negatively how did it affect you um once you started putting on a shirt and a tie as opposed to nwus so probably my biggest challenge was that you know while i was working for the region you know my day would begin with the hard car picking me up at my office or at my house driving me to the airport put me on the learjet waiting for the boss to show up, flying off to wherever we were going, having a hard car pick us up wherever we landed, being taken over to do briefs. I'd get back to the BEQ room for my, and there'd be a fruit basket in my BEQ. Welcome, Master Chief. Yeah. And uh, uh, that lifestyle, if you will. And then when I retired, it was like, uh, okay, Ryanair, go stand in line. <laughs> yeah. But the really real epiphany I had was uh when I was teaching at the scuba shop down in uh, Manassas, and this is before I started going to school, because I was a full-time guy, I was working in the store as well. And so before we had all of our equipment was this big warehouse, if you will. And so, you know, I've been retired, I guess, about two or three months. And uh, I'm, I'm in there, you know, with a big push broom, sweeping out the warehouse. And I'm thinking, you know, four months ago, I was flying around Europe in a leader jet. And now here I am. <laughs> So don't get used to the perks. They go away with the job. <laughs> You've had an amazing life. You've had a lot of amazing experiences. Yeah, I'm still here, man. No, 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 no. But what, <laughs> I, what I'm saying is the with the military, that can be that transition point part of being on the top heap and then coming down and becoming a regular quote-unquote joe right have you seen or have you experienced any um drawbacks when it comes to your mental health and um challenges that you had to readjust yeah, when I first got here at the Smithsonian, I definitely had to adjust because uh, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm much more, let's get this done. Scientists are a different breed. I mean, you know, first of all, you can't make somebody do something in the government. You know, they have to want to do it. So 
when I first started working here, I used to tell everybody, you know, when they asked me what I was doing, I'd say, I'm in sales. I'm selling ideas <laughs> to get these guys to do what they really should be doing. And so that's how I kind of sort of approached it. You know, it was a salesmanship job. You were having, having influence without authority. That's that a very good way to put it. Influence without authority. That That's beautiful. Honestly. Yeah. You got to convince them that they want to do it. Yeah. Well, well that's funny because that's almost like what the definition of leadership is, right? Trying to sit there and get people to willingly do something that they might would not normally do in the first place. Precisely. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So unless anyone else has something else to add, we, we're going to move to the save rounds and the alibis. Right. Uh, so with that, Newt, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just kind of curious. Um, for our listeners, what book or podcast are you currently listening to, reading that could uh, benefit people on their transition or just to help um, develop them professionally and personally? So one of my favorite books is called uh, Faith of My Fathers by John McCain. Uh, and that's both insp inspirational, patriotic, and it'll bring you to tears. I When I was reading it, I had to put it down. I was flying back from the States. And I had to put it away because I didn't want to be sobbing like a three-year-old, you know, as I was reading through that book. Um, but that, that really helped me understand what folks go through, you know, and, and you know, how they maintain their faith, if you will. And so that was, that's an excellent book. So the, uh, the podcast that I'm currently listening to is, uh, is by Mike Rowe and it's called how booze built America. So it talks about the whiskey rebellions and, you know, it's a great podcast and it's fun and it kind of gives you a history lesson the whole time that you're, you know, going through, uh, listening to all the stuff that Mike Rowe does. And I love Mike Rowe. I know Amy's probably heard me say that before, but, uh, uh, he, you know, he really pushes folks into the trades industry and, uh, and there's a, a great shortage of folks in the trades. And so not everybody should, you know, be pursuing a, you know, a college degree. You know, there's plenty of opportunities out there in air handling units and chiller plants and, you know, diesel mechanics, uh, all of those things are really needed. And you can make a pretty decent living in a lot of those. Um, so that's that's one of the things that I would offer. My final thing is that uh, um, for the female vets. So when they go in and you know, when you go in and you fill out an application in USA Jobs or any other job, you know females typically you know they will undersell themselves. You know, let's take, for example, if a guy, if a guy sees something that says, you know, race car driver, well, what is your experience? Well, a guy will say, well, hell, I watch race cars three times a month on NASCAR. So, you know, I'm an expert, right? The female would respond, well, I've only driven on the track 73 times. So, you know, I'm just, an, I'm, an, I'm a beginner. So I guess that's my advice to the to the female vets is do not undersell yourself. 
you know, there, reach for it. Don't lie, but definitely, you know, be honest and say what, what your capabilities and what your skills are. I have a two-part question for you. Um, and it's almost the same, it's just in two different timelines. Before you joined the military, what advice would you give your junior self, right? And then the second part is, when, how early in your transition, and what advice would you give yourself prior to starting your transition back into the civilian side? So the first part is that I would have told myself to save more and spend less. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's the bottom line. I know it's cliche, but uh, I, uh, I I read somewhere like Jay Leno, uh, when he gets a new job, he works and spends as what he was making in his previous job, and he banks all of the stuff for his new job. So when he's when he was doing stand up, and when he got the uh, the Tonight Show, he still lived off his stand up money and banked all of his salary for the tonight the tonight show and so that's a that's a heck of a thing if you can do it um you know and i and i definitely i definitely still sock stuff away now so that has really helped me and the second part was about transition what was that yogi when how early would you give yourself this advice and what advice would you give yourself before you started your transition process? Uh, start at least a year out. Okay. okay. And start getting your ducks together. Make copies of your service record. Make copies of your medical record. Uh, all of those things that you know you will need later on, chances are. And so that's my best advice. I, fortunately, I did that. And so I was, I was fortunate. I had copies of all that stuff. It's really helpful. That's kind of very actually in line with my final bullet there is sounds like you got in a year early uh, prior to, but when did you, like you got into it, but when did you really know that, all right, I'm in this transition mindset, this has happened and it's not checks in the block. It's not anything like this is really happening. Like there's the blue line over there. Um, this is going to happen. When did you really get into that mode and know you are transitioning? When the band started playing at my retirement ceremony. <laughs> so, I mean, I had done some of the pre preliminary stuff, like making copies of things and documenting stuff. But now when the band started playing, I said, okay, we're really going to do this. So, yeah, Jim. and then I didn't look back. So, in fact, a funny story is that, uh, you know, it was a Wednesday around 930 or 10. And the guy that relieved me gave me a call and said, uh, Jr., it's a uh, it's nine o'clock on Wednesday. I said, yeah, I know. I need to get out of bed. <laughs> and he was like, crap. <laughs> he was suffering my job. <laughs> Well, JR, we want to thank you for sharing your time with us and obviously thank uh, Amy for allowing us to get connected and learn from your transition, which by the way, she looks up to you 
and she talks nothing but great things about you. You are the reason, and she says this continuously, you're the reason why she stayed in the Navy. So thank you for that. Well, I'm, I'm honored that she feels that way. I mean, she was obviously a special sailor. And, and now she's helping best, so I'm very happy about it. Yes. And so without further ado, is your transition. Make the best out of it. It's not always unicorns and rainbows. Return to roots.